Greetings, I'm Kate Blanchett and welcome to Postplay Stateless. In this podcast, I will discuss themes and stories introduced in the Netflix original series Stateless with the other show creators. And we'll also speak with some of the remarkable people who inspired the characters in the series and hear their unbelievable but true stories. Today, we're discussing and sharing scenes from the first two episodes. So if you haven't had a chance to watch the first two episodes, and I hope you will, be warned, there's spoilers ahead. Stateless is a powerful and timely series about four strangers whose lives collide at an immigration detention centre in the middle of the Australian desert. We have an airline hostess on the run from a dangerous cult, an Afghan refugee and his family fleeing persecution, a young Australian father escaping a dead-end job, and a bureaucrat who is running out of time to contain a national scandal. Today, I'm catching up with my series co-creators and dear friends, Tony Ayres and Elise McCready. And we're going to discuss how the series came about and the inspiration for the four main characters. These people who arrive in Australia hoping for a new life but get broken down through this interview process which every single detail is immediately disbelieved rather than believed. And by the end, a kind of madness can definitely ensure if your own identity is doubted and pulled away constantly, what are you left with? It's about bringing their children to another country to give them a better life. That's the core story that we felt could really speak to a broader audience. But first, we had to come to grips with video conferencing and some different time zones and check in on where everyone was in the world. I'm speaking from Melbourne, Australia. Elise is speaking from Melbourne, Australia. From next door. The house next door. <laughs> and Kate is speaking from... The country. Somewhere in, in the UK, somewhere yeah. in the United Kingdom. This is it's sort of how we developed the series, yeah. isn't it? Yes. This is like our, our normal. Yeah. Yes. We were always trying to work out which time zone we were in, <laughs> where we were supposed to be and when we were supposed to be. Mm. That was one of the great battles, really. Mm. That's why it took so long. <laughs> <laughs> Stateless has been a labour of love. It's something we've been talking about for... It feels like forever. Mm. You know, when people say labour of love, it, it actually means an agonisingly long road, <laughs> oh, <laughs> usually. Completely. But it's definitely been a passion project. I think it started for all of us individually, but Elise and I were sitting around my uh, kitchen table. Remember the days mm. when we just used to casually meet one another and drop by and have a cup of tea? Mm. And we were talking about... Things, I suppose, that people who deal with story, you're always looking for the stories that people want to talk about but don't really have a way to talk about. And that was about the indefinite detention of asylum seekers and refugees. And having recently returned to Australia with my family, I couldn't understand why it wasn't front-page news because it was internationally. So it really started from there, at least. Mm. We kept talking about the stories we'd read and um, particularly of children. And as a mother, I just thought, how can this happen and why is no one talking about it? Mm. We started talking about it six years ago, I think it yeah. was, Kate. It was yeah. looking for... We're still friends. <laughs> yeah, incredibly. Well, we have been for... Mm, Too long. Years. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been writing for television and Kate was interested in developing shows for television. So we were looking at common points that we both felt passionate about and mm. immigration detention was definitely one of them. Yeah. And it got us thinking about the sort of post 9-11 period in Australian history, which was when 
if you arrived by boat, you were put in detention centres onshore in Australia and many of them were in the most inhospitable parts of Australia, you know, the full desert. Mm. So we sort of started talking about that world, which was 10 to 15 years earlier than where we currently were. Yeah. We started to get into the nuts and bolts of how do we make this because we knew that there were a myriad of stories that we could tell and not just about the um, asylum seekers and refugees themselves but about anyone who touched this system, which to us seemed mad. And, Elisa, why don't we talk to Tony? Mm. And I knew that you two had worked together Mm. and it just seemed like a... A no-brainer. So you didn't burst into the kitchen that day and eat my crumpets, (laughs) but... (laughs) I mean, I was really excited when Elise and Kate talked to me about this project because it was a subject that I kind of personally felt very passionate about. My mother came to Australia on a boat. We weren't refugees, but we were immigrants. Mm. So when I was researching this area, it was something that sort of spoke to me very personally. And so the opportunity to work with Kate and Elise and the opportunity to tackle this subject matter was something that I found impossible to resist. Mm. Yeah. In 2001, the then Prime Minister of Australia, John Howard, post 9-11, really changed the rhetoric around asylum seekers and people seeking refuge in Australia. It became much more about us and them. I I think that not only did he win an election, he set an agenda for the way in which the Australian public would look at refugees from that moment on. Mm. Mm. And suddenly refugees became something to be feared, particularly Muslims, because we were getting a lot of Muslim refugees who were coming via boat. Mm. That combined to be the perfect storm, which created this sense of fear in the Australian public. A lot of people coming here fleeing persecution from wars, in particularly Iraq and Afghanistan. And the solution at the time was to build these massive, massive desert camps to um, hold people in them Mm. until basically given a visa or not given a visa. And the one thing that came up over and over in the many interviews I did with asylum seekers who had ended up in detention in Australia was the unforgiving relentlessness of indefinite detention. Mm. They would say to me, being in prison, and many had been in prison in their home countries, is far easier even if you're tortured physically if you have a date to get out, Mm. but that mental torture of indefinite detention was just the one thing everyone came back to, Mm. that to fight so hard to keep your mental state alive and healthy in that sort of a regime was next to impossible. Deciding to structure the series around the intersection of four main characters, uh, Cam, the prison guard, Claire, the public servant, Sophie, the German-Australian woman, and Amir, the father and Afghan refugee, it was an organic group discovery made between the three of us as well as Belinda Chaco, our other screenwriter. Very early on, as we started to research um, and read, you know, many, many things, it became very clear that there were numerous points of view. And we were always very keen that we weren't going to be didactic, that we were storytellers. And the best way to tell a story is really to investigate character. And in order to do that, we very quickly came upon this idea of, okay, let's have multiple viewpoints because there are multiple viewpoints on this issue. Mm. But let's explore that not as an issue. Let's really explore these viewpoints from a character point of view. And we'd come across a true story about a German-Australian woman who found herself illegally imprisoned in an Australian detention centre. So that was utterly intriguing. We thought that's a good way of 
getting an audience in in a Trojan horse. Yeah. Okay, we'll take you in through a character, but then we're going to take you somewhere that you don't expect. So she was great for that. We wanted to have a refugee character yeah. and to really investigate that experience in a very truthful way, which was obviously a mirror. Mm. I was very interested in a character that was fleeing persecution and looking for a new life. But the nuts and bolts of how you actually do that were fascinating to me and the journey to get to Australia was also fascinating and I felt like we hadn't seen that, not particularly in drama. There had definitely been documentaries. So I was keen to explore that in a way that everyone could relate to because everyone can relate to family. Everyone can relate to wanting a better life for your family, trying to make that relatable so that we could start to empathise as an audience who had been indoctrinated a little, I would say, into believing that refugees and people who came here by boat were all sorts of language used, economic migrants, queue jumpers, all sorts of things that I wanted to kind of throw open and go, no, that's, that's not true. These people are the same as us. It's the circumstances that are different. My name is Farid. Amir. Amir. You're going to Australia? Inshallah. Yeah? Of course. How long do you wait? Too long. But uh, at least here, I don't have to worry about Saddam's men waiting around the corner ready to cut off my balls. And then there's young Sophie. I want to be loved. Sophie Werner is loosely inspired by the experiences of a German-Australian woman, but none of the characters in the series are based on any one person, my character included. And Sophie is a young, vivacious flight attendant who's seeking a better life and a new beginning, and she's got a penchant for singing and dancing. I mean, you don't have to be a quote-unquote artist to want to find meaningful personal expression. And that is what Sophie is trying to find. And she goes to what we think at first is an amateur dramatic society called GOPA, led by the very charismatic Dominic West and Pat Masters, his partner in crime, who I play. I think we can do better. Let's just go back to the top. Well done. Seven, eight, and this organisation, through singing and dancing and physical expression, seeks to unlock people's past traumas and attempt to challenge and transform their identity. I was 13 years old and it was my grand final and I won and nobody was there to watch me. But they were proud when they found out. My dad said he wished he'd come, but um, he never sticks up for me. Why is that? I don't know. I think you do. Because Margot is better than me. No, that's not it, Sophie. They want you to be someone that you're not. They want me to be Margot. Oh. Here it comes. Well, go on a date with Wilhelm, Sophie. Wear the stupid apron, Sophie. Have a baby, Sophie. Get a house like everyone else, Sophie. Just be who who we want you to be, Sophie. Don't be yourself, Sophie. You're too loud, Sophie. You're too much fun, Sophie. If you don't want to be that person, don't be. (laughs) 
So in a way, we always thought about Gordon and Pat as being shadow parents, the two parents who embrace Sophie as she wants to be rather than who she feels previously defined by her family. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I'm quite a shadowy figure who has a traumatic sort of echo for Sophie as the series progresses. You know, the songs that Pat sings sort of echo and haunt her when she arrives to onshore detention. we started to structure the series, the resonances that really started to come forward about the way Dominic's character kind of breaks down Sophie. And when we started to look at what happened, you know, through the research, and I was fortunate enough to read interviews of asylum seekers by officials, the kind of breaking down of identity was not dissimilar. This sort of middle-class white girl who's kind of broken down and loses identity through that. And then these people who arrive in Australia hoping for a new life but get broken down through this interview process of every single detail is immediately disbelieved rather than believed. Mm. It's that doubting and by the end a kind of madness can definitely ensure if your own identity is doubted and pulled away constantly, what are you left with? Mm. And the way people were called numbers too in those detention centres was also part of that taking away your identity the question of who are you was not just relevant to Sophie, who sort of takes on an, an identity in, in Barton, but became also really pertinent for, you know, all of our detainees who were questioned about who they were constantly and not named. So there were these great resonances started to happen in the writer's room. Mm. The cult comes back into the series later as the kind of fantasy of what can happen when identity is eroded so far. When we're introduced to Cam... His car's breaking down, he's running errands with his baby, struggling with childcare and straining to make ends meet, as so many families are these days in regional areas. And then the idea of working at Barton Detention Centre is introduced and the prospect begins to sound very, very appealing. Tell me this, what is stopping you? Hmm? Flexible hours. Three times what I was getting as a boilermaker. There you go. you got to start living your own life, brother. Well, I don't have any qualifications, so... Harry's in charge of recruiting. Tell my brother boy what he needs. Oh, yeah, it's a tough one, mate. A lot of prerequisites. Mm -hmm. Very competitive. Really don't think you got what it takes, mate. (laughs) Yeah, righto. Good on you, then. The other thing that fascinated me about the guards from research, they were so young Mm. and many very uneducated and often had never travelled. So the idea of putting these often 18, 19-year-olds, women and men, not only into the middle of the desert, but into an environment with people from all over the world who spoke all different languages, differing religions, and for these young guys who had absolutely no experience and yet were given a kind of punitive Bible about how they were meant to treat them. One very significant piece of the narrative puzzle was the person responsible for enforcing immigration policy on a practical level at the detention centre. And initially, it was very challenging to find people working in these positions who would speak openly with us. But finally, we gathered enough research to create the composite of our public servant character, Claire. So there's a lot of unrest amongst the detainees. When we were doing the research, we actually met a number of public servants who were working in the department at that time. And you wouldn't think so, but 
actually a lot of them were also dealing with post-traumatic stress from their experiences from that time of having to prosecute policy which they didn't necessarily believe in, but which, being good public servants, they they were uh, obliged to do. And they did diligently and to the best of their ability. Mm. Claire's story is about the personal cost of having to do that. But it was also really important for us to make her someone who was a true believer, who believed in the government's immigration policies and believed that what she was doing was the right thing and that it was only when she had to come face-to-face with the reality of what she was doing that she was confronted by it and and found it increasingly difficult to to hang on to those beliefs. Mm. No one, not even Claire, no one in the series is in a position of power. There's always someone higher up. But what I find fascinating about Claire and very human, and I think that, you know, ordinary citizens, not necessarily people who work for government can relate to, is her understanding of immigration policies and detention policies from an academic perspective and her coming face to face with the human cost of them. And I think that's a really powerful entry point, I think, for a lot of people into the story. Mm. Yeah. This is the new general manager. I think we all felt that each character within the system needed to be grappling with pretty much the same thing, which is a sense of identity, a sense of who they were, and be affected in the same way. Mm-hmm. We had a thesis early on, which is that Mad systems make mad people. And that became something of a a central theme in the way that we dealt with the the trajectory of each of those characters. Mm. What was super exciting was you gradually accrue this kind of uh, understanding of the points of intersection Mm. rather than the points of difference of Mm. all of the different characters. And I think that's that's the empathetic human doorway, I think, through which the audience can go. Mm. And a set of experiences, say Amir and his family and his daughter Mina, which would seem quite alien for somebody who would never encountered a refugee or an asylum seeker, yet we're all daughters of somebody or sons of somebody. Yeah, and the longer we spent in the writer's room, and believe me, you know... It was a long time. Many years. (laughs) Many years in that writer's room. You know, the more connections we found, and, you know, I remember we were talking about the fact they were all running away. That's sort of literal with Amir because he's clearly running from persecution and it is literal also with Sophie to a degree in that she's running from abuse and a sort of stifling family. But Claire and Cam are also both uh, versions more psychological of running away either from poverty or from perhaps failure with Claire. And so it became very interesting to think about the similarities between all the characters and also then to look at their journeys where we started to realise that all of them um, were losing humanity, a mere not by choice because his humanity was being stripped by being called a number and being constantly disbelieved about his own identity. Yeah. Stateless became not so literal as a title. It became about um, separation from self. Mm, yeah. We played around a lot with it because we weren't literally telling a story of stateless people, although there are some characters in the story who are, but it became a more poetic title in terms of if you're separated from yourself, there's a statelessness to that too. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's important to emphasise that statelessness is a legal definition for people who are citizens of nowhere. Mm. So they're not a citizen of any country. And as a result, they're not able to gain access to education. They're not able to use medical services. Their children are not able to get an education. Basic things that we see as human rights. And it's very difficult to count stateless people because they're invisible. 
in a way. Mm. I think the dramatisation was really important and therefore no one character was literally a real person because in putting together the series, what we wanted to do was give it a kind of mythical or almost a fairy tale quality, a fable-like quality. And what we ended up doing when we put this series together was tell a history of onshore detention and why it went wrong in six episodes over a few months in one place. But actually, the real story is that all of these things unraveled over a number of years. But we kind of fictionalised it to create the parable of how things went wrong on onshore detention in Australia. And I, I think that when you follow the series arc of Stateless, you actually see all the different factors that led to detention going offshore. Like the fact that the government really didn't want people to see what was happening. The fact that more and more people in the community were starting to take arms against their sense of inhuman treatment. Mm. One of the parts of the show which I think is really important are all of the advocates who are mainly women, often rural women and often nuns and priests, people from religious backgrounds who had a sense that what was happening was immoral. Mm. And that was kind of stirring up a political within Australia as well. And I think that then led to a clamping down of detention and circumstances getting worse, which led to refugees themselves becoming more politicised. Everything kind of snowballed. And we were telling the story of that snowball, but in a fictionalised way. Mm. To be perfectly honest, because it's taken us so long to find partners courageous enough to sort of want to tell this story and air this story and develop it, I kept in my heart of hearts hoping that the story would be irrelevant, that it would be over, that the system would get better and perhaps we didn't need to tell this story anymore. But with every passing month, with every, about, you know, six months, a year, it just became increasingly important to talk about it because no one was talking about it. Mm-hmm. I think that what we felt that we could do as storytellers was try to make the invisible visible and to give people life and breath and I think that that's the the most potent thing we do in terms of being able to tell stories for populations, parts of the community who are normally not visible. Mm. Yeah. Often when people are not visible, when they're statistics, it's really easy to distance them from our own lives. And that was part of the power of doing this on television. Mm. It was bringing people who were very different from, you know, most of our audience into their living rooms and telling stories that about hope mm. and almost always the universal story for refugees. It was my mother's story. It's a story of so many people who are immigrants. Yeah. It's about bringing their children to another country to give them a better life. That is the recurring story. Mm. And that is the, the kind of, that's the core story of Stateless as well. Mm. And that mm. was the story that we felt could really speak to a broader audience. We try not to judge and we try to give you the flesh and blood version of people that you haven't seen. Yeah, everyone wants a better life. That's all it's about. I think everyone can relate to that. It's about hope, often for their children, and the kind of sacrifices Mm. that you make for the sake of your children. Mm. You know, it's a very simple and I think a very universal story. Mm. You know, I just find this subject fascinating. Mm. Whenever we talk, there's always something new that comes up, that, you know, a a new thought Mm. and a new new way of seeing it that that I I think is really rewarding for me, just listening to the conversation. And just lastly, before we wrap up the episode, we wanted to discuss another key aspect of the series, which was the setting. 
In order to establish the right tone for the Barton Detention Centre in Stateless, we really wanted to create an environment that was so far away from anything familiar to any of the characters that it might as well have been on another planet. The desert was incredibly important to the show visually, mm. not only because historically that's where a lot of these centres were built, it was again down to the out of sight, out of mind yep. thing. Yeah. The visuals of it were always in our heads when we were sort of devising the show and thinking about it, it was always the sort of the utter contradiction of entrapment in a vast landscape was really powerful. Yeah. And we were lucky enough to do a recce to a real one that was still there, empty now, but we were lucky enough to do that with the production designer, the incredible Melinda Doring. And then the decision was made that we did want to build it out in the desert near the town that we shot in, Port Augusta. Melinda designed that set. There were a couple of existing buildings, but she built the main part of the set um, from scratch. And it was very close to how desert detention centres looked at the time. And her detail is extraordinary, like yeah. down to the handles on the doors and the writing you'll see in Farsi and Arabic on doors and things. So specific and so exacting. Mm. I've often said it's like the fifth character of the show yep. because it is so resonant as a place yeah. and... Once we filled it with all those incredible, we don't call them extras, we call them background artists because they were so incredible. I mean, they were extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yep. Their stories. Many of them had experienced detention themselves or been asylum seekers or were still waiting for asylum. And the potential was that it, it could trigger people and bring up, you know, bad memories, which of course it would have in some ways, but also it was incredibly therapeutic yeah. and there were yep. a lot of stories shared between the actors and the background artists um, because we were there for five weeks in that set. It became a real family. It was so alive and we had many tears in there and so many of those stories were shared about people's individual experiences of detention and asylum. But is it worth saying, because obviously we made this on a wing and a prayer and the set was so inventive and extraordinary because we ran out of money for wire and we had one, we had one section of, of wire that we had to keep moving around. Melinda was so extraordinary because she'd look at the schedule for the next few days and go, well, if that fence is there, then I've only got 20 minutes to <laughs> to be in the back of shots <laughs> for oh, this next scene. Oh, my God. So there were many movable fences, <laughs> but, yeah. But it really brought home, too, the fact that the desert in itself is a prison for people who don't know how to exist there. Mm. And so where is there to run? Yep. The desert's a huge image in Australian visual storytelling. The whole notion of it being such an inhospitable place and so far away from so many people's uh, experience that the notion of a fence seems almost ridiculous because there's nowhere to run. Yep. And that's what happens when Sophie does get out. Yeah, the opening image is a woman running through the desert and that in itself feels mythological. <laughs> Whilst this happens on Australian shores, it speaks to uh, language that has been picked up by governments around the world, like the rhetoric around the building of the wall, mm. the rhetoric around Brexit. Mm. It's one of Australia's dubious exports, I, I think. Absolutely right. Mm. It's a politicisation that has happened all around the world. Even if you're not Australian, you can relate to the issues and experiences that Stateless speaks to. I'm Kate Blanchett. And my special thanks extend to Elise McCready and Tony Ayres, who made themselves available to chat with us through the wee hours of a Melbourne evening. 
speak to you soon. Okay. Farewell. Goodbye from Melbourne. See you, Tony. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Stay warm. Bye, Lise. Bye, Tony. But it's not goodbye forever, as I will speak again with Elise and Tony towards the end of the series. Join us next time when we hear stories from two of the many refugees who inspired the stateless characters. I knew it one day I'm going to get to a place where I'm going to call home. In the onshore detention centre, the environment is thoroughly heartbreaking. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Stateless is streaming now on Netflix. Netflix.